Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Leadership, a podcast for leaders everywhere doing their best to learn and lead in a rapidly changing world with your host, Helen Woodward. We're here to share leadership learning from everyday work and research, helping leaders and teams be their best. So wherever you are when you listen, I hope you find something to make you smile, a new insight and a question to think about. So let's talk leadership. My guest today is Professor Lynn Bianchi from the University of Manchester. Uh, Welcome, Lynn, to Let's Talk Leadership. Hiya. Hi, Helen. Um, So, Lynn, you're Professor of Science and Engineering and Education. You're Vice Dean for Social Responsibility, Equality, Diversity, Inclusion and Accessibility at the University of Manchester. Two new leadership roles you took on 12 months ago being the Vice Dean and a few months ago, congratulations, you were promoted to being a professor, which is a huge achievement. So I was delighted for you. Really big congratulations. Now, I know from our previous work that you are passionate about science, but how does all of this fit together? Because these are two massive leadership roles. Thanks, Helen. Um, and thanks for the congratulations as well. I think I had to pinch myself when that email came through. So um, sure. yeah, how does it all come together? Well, you'll, you'll know it. It's a culmination of many years of work in science education, uh, primary science education being um, my area of specialism and you know primary science and engineering. And I suppose you know we've talked in the past and and had you involved in things like the Great Science Share for Schools and working across Greater Manchester in the UK, improving policy and practice around science education, and all of that work would have or would be given the title in the university as social responsibility. It's our it's our responsibility to um, develop the communities around us, both locally, nationally and internationally. And therefore, through that work, that experience, um, lots and lots of different projects over the years, I was able to bring that to the Vice Dean um, application process, I suppose. And I I'm, I'm suppose I'm using the experience um, both from leading lots of different projects with lots of different partners and groups across the country and internationally and, and using that knowledge of how to work well with people, how to be creative and innovative and how to deliver strategy, really, which, which is what my biggest challenge will be now as we introduce a brand new SREDI strategy for the Faculty of Science and Engineering. Mm, SREDI? That's the short term for me not having to say for the rest of this podcast, social responsibility, <laughs> equality, diversion, diversity, inclusion and accessibility, which does not roll off the tongue. That's fine. That's fine. Thank you. So two really big roles. What values are you bringing to your leadership roles, Lynn? What values? Interesting question. Um, and one that I've, was asked quite recently as well by a colleague. When I answered it for him, and I'll probably do the same with you, to answer this well, it takes me back to my childhood. It takes me back to my upbringing. Who I am as a person is what you what your values are, aren't they? I don't think you can live values in anything that you do that aren't utterly entrenched in who you are. And so my family brought me up to be very ambitious, very proactive in what I do, very much encouraging of me doing stuff rather than waiting for other people to do it for me. Whether that comes from being child number three in a family, you know, family of five, you have to do stuff if you want stuff doing. So I am very ambitious and proactive. I'm highly collaborative. And I think a lot of my colleagues would say that 
I much prefer taking a collaborative leadership approach to what I do than than anything else. I want to hear people's voices. I want to understand how they see things. I challenge myself all the time in terms of, am I seeing it right? Am I seeing it from different perspectives? So being collaborative is, is a huge value. And I think those three are probably the ones I want to be collaborative, definitely proactive and ambitious would probably underpin what my friends would say about me. The biggest one I'm continually working on, this is going to sound really negative, but it isn't, but it's making sure that every day there's kindness going on around me. And I've seen this possibly in the last five to 10 years of my life, more important. I don't think it was, I'm not that my parents didn't teach me to be kind, they did, but I think the words of use of the words like being kind to people has become much more part of the employment landscape in the last five, 10 years, whereas I never, don't think I ever heard it much when I was in my younger my younger years um but yeah finding that space to make a difference be kind whether it's just saying hello supporting somebody taking that time for just an extra five minutes when somebody wants to chat at the coffee shop or or just being kind in the way that you respond to an email or the way that you put a comment in a track change just really always thinking about how that will be received because sometimes those smallest quick things that are done can can cause more pain Mm, that's so true that's so true and it's it's kind of like spun me a number of thoughts that because um i think it was robin williams that said everyone is fighting a battle you don't know anything about yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So much is hidden, isn't it? What people bring to the job. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I was listening to Justin Welby this morning interviewing somebody and the discussion was around kindness, actually during bereavement, when people were coming to work, having experienced massive bereavement, you know, the woman he was interviewing was saying, you know, when people come to work with me, they are people first and their employment is the secondary issue in their lives. And I have to value them and treasure them as people first which I thought was really lovely, actually, really lovely. So uh, so the, the role of kindness in leadership is something that's perhaps not talked about as often as it could be. Yeah, sometimes maybe leaders are sort of, the way that you're perceived is, oh, well, they're in a position of power, for instance. And then I've seen, I've seen people do it really well. And I've looked at a lot of female leaders to explore how they've done it and very much taken some guidance and solace from that. It is difficult to achieve, but it can be done. Mm. Um, and, but but it's never never stop learning and never stop reflecting on it. I think that's the key. And you're reminding me about you know quite a few years ago I took on a role um, in a in a local authority at the kind of heyday of early years really. It was before Sure Start and Early Excellence, before all of that. Um, and I was just at a time in my own life which was massively stressful, and I had a new baby, and then all of a sudden the job grew from being like one person to actually I was going to have to recruit a massive team and submit early years plans to the government every quarter. And it was huge. And I found it really stressful. Um, And it impacted on my physical health at the time. My boss, who I didn't know very well, um, phoned me up and said, "Um, I realise you're not well. Uh, You know, why don't you come in? We'll get some lunch and we can talk. And I said, no, I'm just not well enough to come to work. And he said, I haven't asked you to come to work. I've asked you to come in. We'll get some lunch and then we'll talk and we'll see what we can sort out. I thought how hugely kind that was. Yeah, and hugely human. I thought you were going to say how human it was because it is very human, isn't it? It was very human. And actually, because I was stressed, I wasn't really eating very well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, But actually, we made a plan. We talked about how often we'd have supervision, you know, what resources I might need, what kind of skills I didn't have yet that I was going to have to learn. 
And actually, the role was hugely successful. The team were really successful. And I left five years later, you know, stronger for it. But yeah, a really human, kind move. Wonderful. And, you know, you just imagine what would have happened if that if that call hadn't been made, what difference that has made. So, yeah, that's somebody not just being a good manager, are they? They were just being a friend, really, and seeing somebody somebody struggling. Um, and, you know, since COVID, I think that we have got a lot more challenges as people sort of get used to hybrid working. You know, we might say it's great working from home, which it can be. But if you'll if if you suffer from loneliness or anything like that, actually, it's one of the worst things that you can do. But the assumptions that come around hybrid working, what it means to be a worker in different environments. I think we think we've got to deal with a lot more than we probably dealt with in the past to reform our work practices in a really healthy way, both in work so that you get the productivity out. Because at the end of the day, there are jobs to do and we need to do them. We need to do them well. We've got to be accountable for that. But then also to try and think about how people, what else people have got on the plate. Mm, absolutely. I mean, you're moving us on to something I, I wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, what, what do you feel when you look back on the last, uh, let's say, couple of years? What's your most significant leadership learning? So the last couple of years has seen me revving up, you know, like thinking, oh, OK, I'm going to go for promotion or I'm going to go for this job. I've learned a lot about myself. I've had a coach, interestingly, for a, a, a good, well, a, few, a couple of years where I really learned that however much I would try to drop this ambitious stuff, this ambition thing, I do like carrots. You know, I like I like the chase. I always have to have something that I'm aiming for. So whenever I try and get, I can't get rid of it. I don't know. Everyone sort of said, just can you not just chill out and just stop? And if you've not got enough on, you've got three children, they're going through their teens, A-levels, GCSEs, just, you know, just don't for a bit. And I'm just like, but I can't, it's there. And I'm just driven to, to try and be proactive and ambitious, all of that kind of stuff that I said before. I've learned that leadership isn't easy. I know I never assumed it to be, but leadership in a large organization, especially working as vice dean now, has really shown how to be a collaborative leader in the way that I want to be, I suppose. I've had to learn to slow down to make sure that I bring people on board. And by doing that, I've got to sometimes take two steps back to take three steps forward or whatever the, the, the saying is. I haven't got line management responsibility for a lot of the people that I work with and through and with whom we create stuff. So it's not about setting objectives for them. It's about bringing them on. It's bringing their heart and mind on and leading through influence rather than leading through line management, which moves from that more bureaucratic kind of thing to more to be just much more influencing but it can take a longer bit of time and so I think I've learned that everything has its space and it, the time that it's going to require however much I might want to fast track it or put it on 10 seconds faster please I suppose slow and steady goes so what is it slow and steady goes the snail and someone said it's a it's a marathon not a race all of that all of these kind of sayings a lot of self-reflection that goes on in the middle of all that yeah, so I've learned to be an effective leader is all about being effective with people. And I've just got to listen, watch, understand who those people are, what drives them, how that marries with what drives me. And then if we get it right, we make magic. <laughs> At times, you know, it's hard and I'll get it wrong. And if I get it wrong, I hold my hand up and I'll say I made a mistake. Okay, some really lovely messages I'm hearing in there, though. One about kind of slowing things down sometimes. Uh, and there's also one about you know, creating that sense of belonging, helping people feel that they belong, that it's their projects. 
and that that takes time building the people's commitment and their sense of being part of the solutions is really kind of time taking i'm I'm interested around this issue about ambition as well lynn you know because like it's uh, you know, forgive me if this is this is a bit, you know, unkind, but it's almost like you're kind of slightly embarrassed about going, I'm really ambitious. Yeah. I'm not sure whether if I was a chap saying that to you, we would have the same conversation. Now, I'm not being a big feminist here, but I suppose my eyes have been opened through this role with EDIA to much more around where gender inequity might happen. Mm. And um, it's interesting because my brothers have also been brought up with that ambitious streak. Um, but I don't think they've been questioned as often about why you work as many hours as you work. And but I do get questioned that as a mother of three, and you know why aren't I at certain things, and why do I prioritize? I don't prioritize work. I've got a job to do, and it takes me, you know, I'm full time. Therefore, five days a week, funnily enough, I'm going to be at work. But when Mum sort of might say, "Well, can't you just take a day off?" <laughs> I'm like, "Well, not if I work five days. That's a day's leave, and now I've got leave." And you know, you have this whole conversation. But yeah, no, I'm not embarrassed about being ambitious. I think I surprise myself sometimes with what I don't understand why and where it comes from, but I just know it's there and it's a thing that I need to feed. <laughs> but with that comes lots of new learning, lots of new meeting people, lots of new challenges. I think that's what I like really. It just it gives me just a difference to most days rather than it being the same. I suppose I get quite bored with things, you know, otherwise. Okay. I mean you've almost answered it, I think, but I want to ask you, so what excites you? about that what is it that really excites you oh, winning a new project you're right when we write bids I love writing bids and then working with people to get all of the it's like we're doing putting a jigsaw together isn't it you, you've got this potential you open the box and all the bits are all messed up and you sort of think all right I've got to put all of these bits into this bid but we've got to create our picture with it and then it all starts forging out of nowhere sometimes it just all of a sudden it's there and then you'll lot yeah so when you win it and then you've got to start, you know, that's that, that to me is hugely exciting. It's very gratifying that your idea was viewed as creative. It's it's great for the people who you're working with because it's an, it's an endorsement and recognition of their fresh ideas and their creativity. It's an endorsement for the group, for the university, for the faculty. At loads, you know, so many people beyond just one gets excited when those things happen. Um, the tough bit that is in, often implementing it and um, living living it out (laughs) yeah absolutely absolutely but ambition is about what's possible isn't it what's possible here and how can I how can I act on that in a way that creates more possibilities that's right well it's just a bit now we've got a meeting in a couple of weeks maybe next week I think um where we'll be in well I'm being asked about what's the possibilities for great science share as it moves towards its decade of being in existence and then you know where are you going to go in the next 10 years and to be honest I've not sat down and as a team and thought that but now's this opportunity to go well we could go in all sorts of different directions but what direction do we want to go in and um, you sit with that ambiguity for ages could do this could do that and there'll be a, a point I don't know what day it will come but there will be a point where we put pen to paper and it will become a thing and then we'll we'll go again and that creative process that people go through you know I'll be very in the midst of that's exciting and then that will spur on a new set of things mm, that is exciting because that's scenario planning that's you know which which precedes strategic planning doesn't it that's scenario planning but but it's actually about what scenario do we want to create and work towards 
yeah, blue, open thinking. No one's telling us what we've got to do. We are driven by a set of values with great science share and things like that and what we think the sector needs, but we can push it. You know, no one's, I've not got on these kind of things, government telling me you've got to do it this way or take it in a direction which is rigorous, underpinned by evidence and underpinned by knowledge. And then we can be as creative as we want to be. So I'm saying creative quite a lot in what I'm saying to you. Maybe that's the thing. It's the new ideas, the creativity that maybe that's the definition of ambition, maybe, or it's part of it. Mm. Mm. So what would your younger self say to you now, Lynn? <gasps> well, I still feel quite young. I'm not quite hit the big five O, big five O next year. <laughs> but I'm not young. I can I can feel that. What would I say? Um I would say be kinder to myself. One of the things I do struggle with, and a lot of people are more aware of this, is the the amount of self-questioning and anxiety that I will put myself through um, extremely regularly now. So whether it's menopausal or not, I don't know, but overthinking, micro-thinking, analysing where I don't need to analyse about what happened, where it happened, why it happened, who said what, why they said that, why did I, did I, all of the stuff that will just spin in in my head when actually I could just stop and breathe and think it, it was done, it was, you know, accept it, move on. I'd say just chill out a little bit more. Not completely. You do need to overthink. You do need to think. You do need to reflect on what's happened. You need to learn sometimes from ways things were done or not done so well from your mistakes. That's fine. I've got no problem with that. But the overthinking and the over-analysis of it when you're on your own and it's quiet and everybody's asleep and your head will not allow yourself to let go of it. I just wish I could say to my younger self, just, just stop, let it go. Because even by the next morning, most of the time, it doesn't matter, let alone the next week or the next month. And to be honest, now I can't even remember what I worried about but I definitely worry. I can tell you I'm worried and I can tell you it's symptomatic of the way that I am, which is if I could change something, that would be what I would change. And what's, what strategies do you use to help you manage that in a kind of positive way that, that works for you? Uh, still working on it, if I'm uh, genuinely honest. Um, and that's why a coach can, you know, having a regular coach. I mean, I'm saying I meet a coach maybe five or six times a year for an hour. Mm-hmm. Um that giving a little bit of perspective through their eyes has been really helpful. Beyond that, walking, I don't, I'm not a huge runner or exerciser, but getting out, we'll finish this in a bit and I'll go out for a bit of a walk. Sometimes nowadays I, I'm starting to try and map it as well. So realizing that I worry more, this is very feminine now, I worry more in certain times and certain months. <laughs> and there's a regularity to it when, when there's a peak and that can be. I understand. I, I believe I've never had it tested, but I would sense that, that that is related to hormones more than possibly anything that happened. I'll just spin a little bit more out of control in those bits. But unless you sort of clock when it's happening, you know what what it is that's worrying me and how far, and then oh well, funnily enough, that's sort of happening <laughs> repeatedly. So pattern seeking, I suppose, and having just really good friends. You know, really good friends that I can just aren't worried if I pick up a phone and just say, I'm having one of those days. You know, mm. I can't make a decision. I'm worried about such and such. Um, and there's a few trusted people who know who they are who I can very honestly, I'll take it from them and they'll say, Breathe, Lynn, breathe through it. You're fine. Yeah, be all right tomorrow. Off we go. 
get me off onto a different tangent and then we'll be chatting about something else and you got you need a good friend or few friends allies to do that for you you really do you really do so there's some great messages there about connection and friendship about going for a walk pressing the pause button and actually actively marshalling your thoughts in a way that works for you, writing mm. it down or however that's, yeah. that's that's really helpful. That's a nice way of putting it, marshalling. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I had a great conversation a while ago with a, um, a pilot. She was an American military pilot when I was in Kuwait. And um, I said, oh, butterflies today, Melody. And she said, honey, don't worry about the butterflies. Just insist they fly in formation. <laughs> Which I thought was, <laughs> thought was a great way of thinking about it. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Just going to make sure that if we're having butterflies, you fly in formation and I know exactly who's where. That's real. I might think about that one. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, one of the things we like to talk about here is the messiness of leadership, because however good the books are, however great the advice is, it's just messy. So uh, is there something that you could tell us about that just didn't work the way you hoped it would, that was a struggle and how you managed that? I can under, you know, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying about messiness. Um, I think the messiest thing that we always struggle in now, whether it's because we're in a non-statutory space, science education is a relatively, I know it's, I know it's in the national curriculum, but it's not English and maths and the projects that often we'll do with schools are optional absolutely optional you don't have to do them so the bit where we get very messy is around evaluation and feedback and when we get that wrong you know (laughs) so you're trying your best to put in all of these really great incentives to get people to tell you how things are going but actually people don't want to evaluate you know like they want to take part it's a bit like being I always say that great science shares like being part of the Macmillan coffee morning no one wants to go and do a survey after them to, to, to rate the cake that you might have eaten last Thursday when sitting in the park. You know, like, they just don't want to do it. You know, you, you know that you need it. So we, yeah, I think I've made many mistakes of over, over-egging the pudding and trying to get people to give me that feedback. And then you have to say, well, why do we need, you know, like, and, and then the other thing is, get or, or you go the other way and you get so much feedback and we'll do interviews and we'll do surveys. And then you have bags, you either have no data or bags of data, bags of data that very rarely get really used properly or hardly any data that actually, so I think we probably hadn't listened and thought of the other person enough. Why are they in it? You know, I needed the evaluation for me. They did not need the evaluation for them. So I needed to probably, or we still need to work out really effective strategies. Feedback from people is really messy. I've often got that wrong. <laughs> oh, that's that's interesting though, because it's there, there is the really big question about why are we gathering this? Why are we gathering the yeah. data and who's it actually for? And then what are we going to do with it? Which is what you're unpacking. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Doing that in a way that enables participants to kind of quickly do it, in, you know, along with everything else that they're trying to do. Yeah. It's a bit like assessment in schools, isn't it? You know, I've just had two go through GCSEs and A-levels. If you ask me, does that reflect their capability and ability? Not it, not in the slightest. It is one fragment of who those children are, but everything is on it. So it's just like, like you were just, you know, if we could get to a point, maybe like the court, you know, like the best things of their stuff that they've done is coursework, where through doing a piece, a creative piece of writing or through doing a piece of artwork, They've learned, but they've also been assessed. If we could, if I can find that golden space where just by participating, we're also managing to gather the data or the evidence that we want, and actually that there isn't a thing that comes at the end. That's the holy grail, I think. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay. So then we like to leave our listeners with um, a story to make them smile. Um, is there something that you can share with us that was just something that makes you laugh or something that was very funny that happened when you were leading something? That's such a great question. Laughter is just such a tonic, isn't it? Maybe I'll reflect on some of the work that we did together in the Great Science Fair. So you had the wonderful opportunity to go to Nepal and I chased you and said, please take the Great Science Fair to Nepal. Oh, you were hugely supportive. <laughs> That's what I remember. Yeah, yeah. Persuasive. <laughs> I just told you you had to do it. Um, you had um, the opportunity. You sent back and the most amazing uh, video and I, I mean we've still got it I don't know what you know children doing a science investigation that some children in Berry had in, inspired them to do um, and in a world of health and safety and everything else that goes on in schools where we literally can't move without a risk assessment this beautiful video shows children on the side of a mountain literally in a, a demolished two-story building and children literally hanging out of a window, <laughs> which hasn't got any glass in, throwing these paper spinners down to see how many times they span and how long it took them to get to the ground. <laughs> and um, I showed this at one of our conferences. Uh, um, I think it was the International Conference for Science Education. Um, basically, as a means but to say, like, you don't ever tell me that you can't do it because if, you know, like, if we can do it on the side of a mountain in the middle of Nepal, we can do it in School X in, you know, one of the local authorities in, in Greater Manchester or Norwich or wherever you are. No one can tell me that they can't. But I failed to realise that there was an Ofsted inspector <laughs> sitting in the side of the room with his with his head in his hands saying, I don't see that, Lynn. <laughs> we professionally acknowledged <laughs> uh, the challenge that I'd set there. But um, there we are. Yeah, I did smirk and think, oh, yeah, we'll think about that again. They are. And, and, you know, we always say the health and safety protocols come by the school that you are working with and we're not, we're not responsible for all that. But the joy on their faces, you know, I think we've lost some of that, though, haven't we? We've lost some of that childliness. We've lost some of the, you know, just that appetite for children to be children and, and that it is all right most of the time that we don't have to risk assess everything, you know. But then I get, I absolutely get, creeps will have a go at me because, um, it's about doing more, not doing less with risk assessments, isn't it? It's about opening up the opportunities. Yeah. Well, these things are culturally specific, aren't they? <laughs> uh, well, this is the point. Dropping a piece of paper out of the, yeah, I think it was one story, not, but yeah. But yeah, but the joy in their eyes. I mean, I'll, I'll always be grateful for you having taken that piece of work to Nepal. And yeah, every time I watch that film, I have a tear in my eye. I just wonder, wonder whether next year they'll be involved again. I know, I know, and likewise, Lynn. But and I, we will link the video for listeners so they can see what we're uh, what we're enjoying remembering. Okay, um, Lynn, we're nearly out of time, so this is a quick one. But I want to ask you one question that you regularly ask yourself as a leader um, that helps you stay grounded. I'd say, what what are you doing and why? I think I think it's the why. I always want to be sure that I know why I'm doing it. You know, whether it's because it's for the right person at the right time, whether it's linked to strategy, but I'm less interested in maybe what we're doing, and but I want to be really sure. Why do we have a really clear why? Really simple, really nice. Why are we doing this? Yeah, let's be really clear. Let's make sure everybody knows. 
that's that's really helpful and and just lovely um professor lynn bianchi thank you so much for joining us today on let's talk leadership it's been brilliant as always to talk with you thank you so much thanks helen and always admire what you do so keep doing it thanks for listening to let's talk leadership for more head over to helenmgconsulting.com and find out about leadership programs and leadership coaching helping you and your team be the best version of yourselves